Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Um, by back, way of background for this podcast, we did a podcast with Dr. Julie Bronamini McBride, episode 652 on helping women solve porn use. And she sent me an email and she said, um, there's a couple other researchers, um, professors at BYU that I think would be great to be on your platform. And she said, Dr. Shalom Levitt on, sexu- on mindful sexuality or sexual mindfulness. And we, she was on and was terrific. The episode 670, um, Dr. Fermini, if I didn't already mention, was episode 652. And the other person she mentioned was Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at BYU. And she said, put in the subject line to your email to these professors. Julie Fermini McBride said to contact you, um, and then they'll probably respond. So you've got a smile on your face, Dr. Willoughby. So this is kind of podcast three of three, um, three professors at BYU that are teaching and writing about really tender, important subjects. So I'm grateful to have Dr. Willoughby on the podcast. Um, you got a BS in Brigham Young University, BYU in psychology. Um, then it went on to the University of Minnesota and got a master's in family social science. And then he got a PhD at the University of Minnesota in family social science. And um, she, Dr. Um, McBride, said he's um, going to really good talking about marriage and also pornography. But your website uh, on the BYU website um, talks about how adolescents, young adults, and adults move forward and form long-term committed relationships focusing on young adult development, couple dynamics, marriage cohabitation, marital beliefs, and, and sexuality. Dr. Willoughby is also the director of Relate Institute. Relate Institute is a nonprofit organization with a specific task of developing research and outreach tools that can be used directly with the public that can be used to gather information about relationships. So I'm really glad to have Dr. Willoughby on the podcast, and um, <clears throat> he is one of these professors that's doing research on really important and kind of sometimes tender topics in our community to help us understand these uh, better from a research standpoint and then uh, bring that research forward and also teaching in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. So I'm grateful for the work you're doing. I honest don't know tons about it. I just trust you to that you know what you're doing and that what you are doing, just like these other two episodes, um, will be helpful for our listeners. Is that okay for an introduction? Yeah, you did. You did great. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered. I'm happy to be here um, talking about, like you said, uh, hopefully a, a lot of different things that'll be helpful to your listeners when it comes to um, relationships generally, and, and then maybe specifically how um, pornography and, and some of those more more tender things, like you said, kind of come in and uh, are, are a challenge for a lot of couples um, and, and young adults outside of relationships today. So happy to be here. Um, tell us just a little bit about where you grew up um, and um, just a little bit about your station in life, um, kind of pre-BYU, and, and then maybe a little bit about, this is helpful sometimes for younger listeners that are trying to find their way career-wise. I, I don't know if I talk to your 16-year-old self, if that 16-year-old self would believe you're doing what you're doing now, but somehow that became true. So talk a lo- little bit about just your personal story as well as um, your upbringing. Yeah. 
Um, well, I, I, I know for a fact my 16-year-old self would not believe that I, I am here <laughs> doing doing this podcast talking about um, this topic. So I, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I grew up in western Wisconsin, a uh, small town called Eau Claire. Um, I grew up there my my entire life, had a small family. My Both my parents were transplants to the Midwest, uh, both grew up in the South. I had one younger brother. I was the oldest. And um, I I actually really, I mean, I, I went through like the firefighter stage. I wanted to be a geologist <laughs> for a little bit, wanted to be a vet for a little bit. Um, but uh, by the time I got to high school, I'd actually kind of focused in on uh, medical school. Um, I wanted to be a, a pathologist. I uh, wanted to go into medical school. I went to the University of Wisconsin my freshman year um, with a major in genetics and pre-med. And, and that was kind of my direction in life. Um, and, and then, uh, things changed pretty dramatically for me, uh, because I met the missionaries, um, wow. my freshman year, uh, college, I had an acquaintance, uh, a friend that I had uh, met earlier in life that had, uh, kind of, uh, introduced me to the gospel of Jesus Christ and, um, sent the missionaries. And so I had a, a conversion, uh, to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, my freshman year of college when I was 18, 19. And um, decided to transfer to BYU after my freshman year. And so I, I came over to BYU. And um, BYU at the time did not have a genetics program. And so I, I had to find a new major. And uh, like a lot of undergraduates that I see today that aren't quite sure what they want to do with themselves, start to gravitate towards psychology and the social sciences because most people find that interesting. And so I, I decided to be a psychology major, still was pre-med, still was intending to go to medical school. Um, but then uh, that uh, acquaintance that introduced me to the gospel um, ended up turning into my wife and uh, awesome. got married. And uh, so there's a lot of transition in my life. And, and during that transition, we kind of reevaluated career plans and life plans and what I wanted to, to, to have with my life uh, as I got married and had kids eventually. Um, decided to shift a little bit and move more towards the clinical psychology therapy route. So I kind of started to shift wanting to do therapy my mom's a licensed social worker. So I'd kind of seen that growing up. I, I loved helping people, talking to people, um, all those things that you hear from people that want to do therapy. And so I started to kind of get more interested into the clinical psychology area. Um, and through um, a series of mentorships and, and undergraduate experiences, um, was really kind of pushed towards the family field and relationship field. And uh, that's kind of what drew me to the University of Minnesota was um, a, a real interest in healthy marriages and healthy relationships. Obviously, I was a newlywed at the time, fascinated with what makes marriages work, what makes them not work. There's been a ton of divorce in my family. My, both my parents have been married multiple times. Um, so I was just really fascinated with what makes healthy relationships and healthy marriages. And so I, I had the privilege to go to the University of Minnesota and work with one of the very, very top people in the world on marriage, uh, Dr. William Doherty. I was one of the top marriage and family therapists in the world. Um, I was able to work with him for five years there during my master's and PhD. Um, learning a lot just about that very question is what makes a healthy marriage and how do you intervene? And so I did research on marriage education, divorce prevention, and, and things like that. Um, it was actually in my PhD program that we were doing a study on young unmarried couples with kids called fragile families was kind of the term that we used. and is I did interviews and, and surveys with these young couples in their 20s with kids that were moving towards marriage. Um, I got really, really specifically focused and interested 
on that period before marriage. So I was still interested in marriage and healthy marriages and what makes them tick. But I got really interested in my PhD program on that kind of premarital phase, that that 20s decade of life, from 20 to 30, when people are dating, they're cohabiting, some are getting married, some aren't. What are the decisions that people are making in that time period that are leading them eventually to either get into a happy marriage, to not decide to get married, or maybe to get into a marriage that turns out to be less than happy? Um, and so that that's where I kind of shifted and, and where my career really began was this focus on what leads then to healthy and, and satisfying relationships. Um, and then for most people, that's still marriage. And so when I began my career at BYU 14 years ago, that was kind of my focus is, is young adulthood, dating, marriage, young married couples, um, and, and really kind of had just this question and passion around what are the factors that really matter? And so like, like you said in the introduction, um, I did a little bit of research on cohabitation, living together before marriage. I did some, some research on marital attitudes and beliefs. What, what's your thinking process about dating and how does that matter? I did some research on risk-taking, alcohol use, drug use, um, some research on sexual behavior. So kind of just anything I could come up with that I thought would matter when it came to moving towards a healthy long-term relationship. And that's really what my career has kind of been centered around is these different things that have popped up. Um, now, what's interesting for me at this stage of my career, you know, almost a, a decade plus later, is the specific focus on pornography um, kind of came out unintentionally, as, as I always tell people, I never really intended to, to be uh, an expert on pornography. Um, it came out very organically based on this other research I was doing, where as, as I did more and more research on young couples and young adults and teenagers and late adolescents. Um, and, and if you kind of put this in time period, right, this is kind of 2005 to 2010 when I'm starting my career, right around the time that smartphones and the internet were really kind of coming um, into their own for the first time, um, this issue of pornography started to come up again and again and again. Interview studies, survey studies, uh, it became very, very clear that more and more young adults and more and more young couples we're having to navigate this issue that's always been there throughout all human history. There's been sexually explicit material, um, but was there in a very different way. It was more prominent. It was more accessible. It was more prevalent in, in religious and non-religious communities. And it was just something that was kind of always there behind the surface. Um, and behind the surface is probably something we'll talk about a lot more today because it, it wasn't being openly discussed. It wasn't being talked about openly by individuals or, or with couples, um, but it was clearly there. And, and so that's where I, I've spent a lot of time in the last um, 10 years or so, particularly the last six or seven years, very specifically focused on pornography, but always still with an eye towards how are young people and adults, both individually and in their relationships, navigating this this topic how are they talking about it how is it affecting them how is it affecting the relationships um because it is such a, a prominent main factor in, in just about every relationship i think my my opinion is almost every relationship now is touched by pornography in some way um whether that's one or both couples that have had some history with pornography which is which is very very common um or two people that maybe have avoided pornography but have had to be very intentional in that avoidance and how they talk about 
what that looks like in their life. And so um, the the pornography focus has been there, but it, it's always been, like you kind of said, in the context of this much larger approach to understanding relationships and, and, and why people make decisions about relationships, getting in and out of relationships and, and what those relationships look like, both in a healthy and unhealthy way. This is really helpful. Um, I'm learning this, listeners, for the first time and just learning more about Dr. Willoughby's focus and his personal story. And there's not many people in this space right now, especially with the research, not just sort of, you know, thinking about it, talking about it from one or two experiences, but actually diving into the research. I'm sort of a market research guy from the Tanner building in my days, so I'm driven by data to help me make better decisions. And so I'm grateful you've published tons of articles um, on this subject and others. So keep sharing. I, You know, just you could talk to just what the research is saying. I assume the research is talking about avoiding pornography is a good thing. Um, so, um, yeah. but you could also just talk about, you know, what you're finding and when, what you're teaching to BYU students and in other circles. Yeah. Um, I, I always like to start on this topic by talking a little bit about one of the more common questions I get, which is which is this question of prevalence. Um, I think particularly in, in religious communities, and like you said, on, on BYU's campus, there's always this kind of question of, I hear this word pornography all the time. I hear it from my my parents. I hear it from my church leaders. I, I hear it here and there. Like the, it's, it's Again, it's always kind of there, but then there's always this question of, how big of a deal is it? And, and there's two parts of that question that I think are really important that I, I'd like to kind of talk about and, and talk about what the research is finding. One is how prevalent actually is it? Like, like when we talk about pornography and, and a pornography problem, how big of a problem is it? How common is this? Are we talking 10%, 30%, 50%? Like what is, because there's a lot of myths out there. Yeah. Um, a lot of fear about that. So that's kind of one part of the, is this really a big deal? Um, the second part, just to kind of um, give a little uh, tease to where, where I want to go with this, is the, okay, so regardless of how common this this pornography issue might be, is it really a big deal? And, and that goes to kind of what you said, like, what is the research actually saying about the effect of pornography? I keep being told it's a big deal. Uh, again, oftentimes in religious communities, we're told that this is you know, an evil thing. It's a it's a sinful thing. It's going to ruin your life. But I, I hear from a lot of people that I talk to that that have either struggled with pornography or, or used pornography off and on. This kind of question of, well, I is it really that big of a deal? Is it just my religious community that thinks is a big deal? If we took the religious kind of wrapping off of this, would it really be that big of a deal? And so let, I'd like to kind of talk about kind of both of those those pieces. Um, so going back to the the prevalence piece, I always think it's really important to normalize pornography. So I always have to be careful with that word. Normalizing does not mean that it's good or healthy. Again, we'll talk about that in a second. Normalizing something, making something normal simply means that most people engage in it. And that's certainly the case with pornography, particularly for men. Um, all the data that we have and all the data that I've collected over the years all shows kind of the same thing, which is the vast majority of men have some sort of history with pornography. Um, obviously, that differs individual individuals. Some people have you know, a struggle with compulsive and addictive use. 
Um, some people have kind of an on and off again, habit, bad habit, whatever you want to kind of say. The, the term we use in the research right now is problematic pornography use, where it's kind of a bad habit that won't go away and causes distress, but hasn't quite reached the level of compulsion and addiction. Um, to someone that maybe, you know, had a period of their life during the teenage years or in their young adulthood years where there was a couple of years that I was struggling with pornography, but then I, I gave it up and I haven't turned back to it since. Um, to people that have had maybe just one or two encounters with pornography, accidental or intentional, that, hey, you know, there's, you know, three times in my life I can remember that I looked at porn. My friend, you know, Roger, when I was 15, showed me this website one time, or I, I had one little night where I got curious and I checked and then I never went back again. Um, if you look at just kind of that whole range for men, you're looking at about 80, 90% of men that have some sort of intentional history with pornography. And, and that number to me is really important because... Is that like L- before, LDS men or men in general? So what's interesting is if you're looking at just kind of the overall picture of just, I've used pornography intentionally at some point, there's almost no difference between LDS men, other religious men, non-religious men. The, that percentage stays relatively stable. Um, the difference in terms of LDS men is in frequency. So LDS men tend to use at a lower frequency than um, non-religious men. Uh, in fact, the, some statistics there, and these sometimes catch people that live in a religious community off guard. Uh, your typical 19, 20, 21-year-old male right now on average, just your average pornography use is about two to three times per week. Uh, that's just normal average behavior for a non-religious male, which seems excessively high um, for most uh, religious men. Because most religious men that use pornography, we're talking a couple times a year, a couple times a month. That's kind of the more average frequency that we see for religious men, including Latter-day Saint men. Um, and Latter-day Saint men don't tend to be that different than Catholic men Jewish men, men of other religious faiths. It's it's a lower frequency, but tends to be a very, very high percent. And, and like I was saying, I think that's really important because one thing I see a lot is a lot of men, religious men in particular, that think they're alone with their pornography history. They think I'm the only one or I'm part of the minority that have struggled with this when I was a teenager. Or I've struggled with this right now. And I I'm 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 an oddity. I'm the one that can't control myself. I'm the one that that is the the bad person. Uh, when in reality, like I said, you're, you're not just talking about 50, 60%. You're talking about nine, eight out of every 10 men have some sort of history of pornography. Um, that's also important, I think, on the female side. Uh, as, I, as I tell my BYU students a lot when I do firesides with, with couples and wards, um, I'm always quick to point out that from a female perspective, it's important to understand that too particularly in the dating realm, because a lot of religious women oftentimes have a mindset of, I'm trying to avoid the men that have history with pornography. The, those are the guys I don't want to date. I don't want to marry. I want to try to avoid them. Um, and again, when you look at the numbers, the reality is, is almost every guy you date is going to have some history with pornography. Really, the, the, the difference is probably going to be what that looks like for him. Um, not that you can't find men out there that have avoided pornography, but understand that that is the rare minority. That's that's the odd, um, and I don't want to say odd in terms of like it's an odd person, right? But it's it's the minority of men out there have have managed to avoid pornography, um, and I think that's just really important to a theme I'm probably going to keep coming back to, which is having this 
topic be more of an open conversation in dating, in marriages, in religious communities, um, having this not be a stigmatized conversation. Because if we understand that the majority of our, our men have some sort of history of pornography, then that means the majority of our men need access to resources, to religious leaders, to friends, to spouses, to help them maybe overcome uh, temptation or overcome struggles that they're having with their life that they oftentimes hide because, like I said, they're, they're worried that they're in the minority. So I think that prevalence and that kind of normalization is important. Um, now, um, I'm talking about frequency. Let me go back to the gender piece a little bit because there's a, a, an interesting Latter-day Saint dynamic as you, as you brought that group up that's also important here. While men, Latter-day Saint men, don't tend to differ much from other religious groups, Latter-day Saint women are the single most interesting and unique subgroup that we see in our data on this topic. Um, female pornography use is lower than men. Men use pornography much more than, than women, although the female use rates have been increasing. So whereas you look at 80, 90% of men typically have some sort of history of pornography, now you're looking at 60 to 70% of women have uh, just across the board have some um, history of pornography. You do see some religious differences. Religious women go down to you know more of a 30-ish percent, 30, 40% among religious women. So we do see religion have a bigger effect for women. Um, but within that religious group, Latter-day Saint women tend to go down to about 10%. Um, they, are, they are the true odd duck when it comes to pornography use. And that, to me, is one of the biggest messages I try to send people in, in Latter-day Saint communities around this prevalence question. Because if you go back to what I said about men what you realize pretty quickly is that we have a lot of religious men, Latter-day Saint men, that are just like a lot of other men out there. They've, they've got some interaction, some history of pornography with this very, very unique subpopulation of women that have avoided intentionally, for the most part, pornography. And so there's a big gap between those two. And so you can imagine that when they start to date each other and when they start to marry each other, that lack of, of congruence in history and engagement with this very specific um, aspect of sexuality creates a lot of anxiety. It creates an environment where communication oftentimes doesn't happen. Um, because as I said, a lot of Latter-day Saint women oftentimes go into relationships um, with this perspective that, well, I, I've managed to avoid it. And so I want to find the guy that's managed to avoid it. And the guys know that the women are, are thinking that, and so they're much less likely to disclose. And so we get this very unique pattern in Latter-day Saint communities and marriages that basically anyone that's been a bishop or been in an award or been in any other religious community has heard, which is the guy that didn't disclose pornography as while they were dating, didn't disclose it early in marriage. It comes out a year or two, five years into a marriage. And all of a sudden, we've got a major violation of trust, a major violation of relationship boundaries. And now that pornography use is acting in, in a very real way, just like infidelity would do, um, because it feels like that. It feels like such a violation of trust. And, and a lot of that um, can be somewhat avoided if we're able to talk more openly just about how prevalent this is much earlier in the process during that dating phase. And so that, that gender difference is, is a kind of a very interesting dynamic that I think is, is really important. So really fascinating and um 
you know, listeners, I don't, I want to make sure I don't want to sidetrack, but um, I came at this from a pastoral perspective as a former YSA bishop, and in the second book I wrote, um, one of the chapters are it was ending pornography use, and I wrote how big of a challenge is this? I don't speak for the entire church, but more than 60 percent of forty percent of the active men and more than ten percent of the active women in my YSA word we're working to end end pornography use. So my sort of anecdotal, you know, experience is very consistent with the research you're finding. Yeah. Um, But there were a lot of women that wanted to find the guy that didn't look view porn. And I tried to give a more nuanced perspective because some of the men that were working to solve porn were some of the best men I knew. And, and just write that whole group off. I thought, you know, I probably would have done the same thing or told my daughter to do the same thing. But I recognize that some of these good men, um, as they're working to solve this, are developing Christ-like attributes, compassion and empathy, and understanding the Toma would help them be a better husband and father. And so that's just kind of my pastoral perspective. But I, you know, the first guy that walked in my office as I was set apart was working to solve porn and I think 60 to 70% of my interviews were this subject. And I'd wish I'd listened to your podcast that we're recording right now um, before I was called, because um, I know you're giving us tools to help us. I lack tools. Just being a set apart didn't give me the tools to help someone in porn use. So keep sharing what, you're, what the research is sharing and what you're learning and um, what advice you give to people working through porn use and those that are working to help them. Yeah. And I, I think you just said something really, really key back to something I said earlier, which is this acknowledgement of how common this is shouldn't detract from the seriousness of the behavior and, and that it's it's amoral. And, and certainly the message to young women is not, hey, you're wrong for wanting to find a guy that's, uh, uh, you know, obeys the law of chastity and, and takes those covenants that he's made very seriously but but as you said like any mistake people have made or any trial that they're going through i always encourage women in a dating context to think more about one what is the current context right because there's a a, a big difference between someone who is actively struggling with a compulsive addictive behavior and someone that has struggled in the past and has overcome and is, is or is you know in the process of recovery uh, but then as you said is to think about what is this person developed through this trial and whether that trial is pornography substance use addiction swearing media use kindness to others you know the the list goes on and on and on is there's a lot of things that people go through in a lot of trials pornography just being one of them and if i'm thinking about someone as an eternal companion the bigger question is less what are the trials you've been through and more, what have you done to overcome them? If I can find a, a, a guy that's pornography has been his trial, but I can see that he's turned to the savior, that he's turned to his spiritual resources, that he's been open and communicative with me about it, that, that he values honesty with me, that he wants to have an emotional connection with me, that he understands maybe some of the things pornography has done to his views of intimacy. He wants to make sure it doesn't affect our relationship. Um, you know, those, those are all great things. Wow. You know, those are all things that you want. And if, if, if pornography, if a trial of pornography was the vehicle for them to develop those attributes, 
then great. Um, and, and that's that's what the focus should be on. And sometimes the focus gets shifted and said, well, if you've done this, then that just automatic, you know, that's the scarlet letter right. um, on your chest. And I don't want anything to do with you. And unfortunately, guys know, young adult men know that pornography can be that scarlet letter. And that's what leads a lot of them to say, well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you everything about my history and my family and, and the, mm. all these things that I've gone through, but I'm not going to tell you that. Because I know if I tell you that, you might leave. Um, and I think that's that's unfortunate sometimes. Um, I want to raise one other quick thing about prevalence before I talk more about the research on, on some of the effects and, and get into some of the recovery stuff. Um, back to the female side, there, there's another piece to that really low usage rate, prevalence rate among uh, Latter-day Saint women. Um, and it's for that 10% that you reference as a bishop that have struggled. Uh, the the females that have struggled with compulsive or addictive or problematic or even any pornography use, um, it feels very isolating to them. I'm sure Julie talked maybe a little bit about this. Yeah. Uh, but there's a, a reality for the women that they are in the minority and, and they understand that. And it can feel very isolating, like I said. It can feel very lonely to feel like, what's wrong with me? Why am I the woman that that struggles with this when I, it feels like none of my other peers, none of my other friends have even thought about pornography. Why has this happened to me? And I think it's important to acknowledge that piece to it, that, that for a lot of people, a lot of women um, in, in many religious communities, uh, they can feel very alone and very isolated with pornography use. So I think there, there's another important message there of not allowing that to dwell in the shadows and, and seeking resources, seeking bishops and friends and family members um and not stigmatizing female pornography sometimes we do that oh you know boys will be boys that's you know to be expected but oh a, a, a female that looks at pornography what's wrong with you there must yeah. be something really wrong with you if, if you're struggling with that i think we need to be careful about that narrative so that a lot of these women that feel like i can't go to my bishop i can't go to my friends i can't go to my family members i can't go to my spouse um, for very different reasons sometimes than the men, um, feel like, again, that they can talk about it to, and find resources. Um, if I speak a little bit to that other side, like I said, the the is this actually a big deal? I, I know that's always a question I get asked. It's always on people's mind when we talk about this. Like, it, And we'll go back to prevalence. If, if 70, 80% of men are using pornography, how big of a deal can it possibly be? Because it's not like 70, 80% of men are dysfunctional people that are, you know, committing crimes and, and all these horrible things. So how big of a deal is it? And, and this is where the research gets really important and a little nuanced. Um, because we have to start to separate two groups here. There is a group of people out there that, as I've already referenced, struggle with what I call compulsive or addictive pornography use. Um, and that's where we mostly tend to talk about pornography use, particularly in religious communities. That's what we kind of focus on. It's what we have in our head is the, the person that can't stop, that is in a you know, very strong emotional distress, that pornography use is likely tied to other mental health issues going on, depression, anxiety, attachment disorders, things like that. Um, and what the research says there is that pornography use operates a lot like gambling addiction like other behavioral addictions where it has an effect on brain chemistry, it has a massive effect on personal well-being, it has a massive effect on relationship well-being. 
It's just, it's, it's a really, really hard thing. Like a lot of other addictions, you know, whatever addiction you want to put in that bubble, um, it causes a lot of distress. It causes a lot of damage in people's lives and relationships. And there's a really big need for clinical resources there. That's where 12 step programs, that's where uh, mental health counselors, social works, marriage and family therapists, um, in combination with maybe religious resources, um, are really, really, really important. Um, and, and I always want to acknowledge that, that yes, there's, there's a, a very long list of research studies that show that pornography can be addictive and that when it is developed into a compulsive addictive pattern, it has a very negative damaging effect on that person's life. And then I immediately follow that up and say that is a very rare thing. About 10 to 15% of pornography users is our best estimate fall into that camp. Wow. Uh, and so it's important again not to diminish it because for the people that are in that group, it's a very real, very, very hard thing to overcome. Um, but it's not most people. Most people fall into this other camp of, of that term I used before, more of a problematic, habitual, bad habit type of pattern. Um, this is the pattern, again, you as a bishop, anyone who's been a bishop has seen this pattern because this is what you mostly were counseling a lot of young men about. It's the, I was good for two months mm -hmm. and then I had a slip up and I had a slip up a couple times last week and then I was good for three weeks and then I had another slip up and then I was good for four months and then I had another slip up, right? That's not a compulsive pattern, right? The, the compulsive pattern is daily hours a day is what we're looking for oftentimes there. Um, this kind of weekly, monthly, every other month type of pattern, slip up, you know, type of pattern is more of this problematic use pattern. And this is where the research suggests that there is still a negative effect, but it's much more subtle. Um, and the negative effect has a lot more to do not with your day-to-day -day life and how you feel about yourself, although it can still cause a lot of distress, particularly for religious people that oftentimes have what we call moral incongruence. Uh, which is, you know, I've, I've done something that violates my moral code. And so I feel anxiety about that. It's, it's the same thing you'd feel if you commit any sin in a, in, in a religious organization. Um, so that can be distressing. But for non-religious people and religious people alike, the effect is more about views and attitudes about intimacy, um, what we call sexual scripts in my field. Um, and there's a lot of very good research that suggests that when people regularly view pornography, it shifts how they think about intimacy. It shifts how they think about their partner. Um, for example, a lot of the research that I've done specifically has shown that pornography use is linked to lower relationship satisfaction, lower sexual satisfaction. You're just less happy with your relationship. And, and I think the reasons for that are pretty self-evident to people, right? Pornography depicts, I, I always talk about the three non-normative pieces of pornography. Pornography depicts non-normative people engaging in non-normative sexual acts in a non-normative setting. And so there's very little about what pornography is showing that mirrors normal healthy intimacy. And so when I'm viewing that on a regular basis, then it's common that my views and expectations about intimacy with my spouse, with my dating partners is going to shift. And that's where we think the lower sexual satisfaction, lower relationship satisfaction, comes into play. But again, it's it's very subtle. The way I explain it sometimes to my students is that oftentimes someone that's regularly using pornography 
if if say relationship satisfaction happiness is on a one to ten point scale, ten is celestial happiest relationship you can possibly have. A one is the you know vile most horrible relationship you can think of. A pornography regular pornography user is not moving from a nine ten to a two three. It's not having that effect in the relationship. The better way to think about it is it's capping you at a seven. Interesting. It's not allowing you because of how you're thinking about intimacy and thinking about relationships to get past that seven. Now, for a lot of people, seven seems good. It's I'm happy. I'm satisfied. Again, you can find a lot of people out there in the world that view pornography regularly by themselves with their partner that are in happy, stable marriages. But what the research shows is that they are much less likely to be nines and tens. The I, I did a study last year uh, with the Wheatley Institute on campus, which is a, a group on campus that tries to tackle kind of larger societal issues and problems. Um, and we looked at this specifically. We, we looked at this large data set of couples in the United States, and we asked the question, who are the happiest couples? They were the most satisfied. They had the best communication, the best stability. Let me, let's move those couples over here. Let's take our, our happy couples and put them here. And let's put our unhappy couples there. And let's look at how they're different. One of the things we looked at was pornography. And without fail, no matter how we looked at it, the couples that were over here, the most, the happiest, most satisfied, most stable couples were the couples that were avoiding pornography. The couples that were looking at pornography at any level, individually, relationally, together as a couple, tended to be in one of the other two groups. And I think that's really important because, again, as I talk to young people and, and young couples, when this question comes up of, is this really a big deal? Is it, you know, I'm, I'm going to school or I'm in a relationship, we seem happy. It's not, you know, the only time it affects me is when I, I get guilty about it. But if, if I let that guilt go, I don't think it's really having an effect on me. And I, I'm always quick to point out this kind of research to say, well, I guess it really comes down to what kind of relationship do you want? Do you want the best, happiest, stable, most stable kind of relationship out there? When the research suggests that that would be avoiding pornography, because the way that we think about intimacy is going to be better. It's going to be more holistic. It's going to be more partner-centered and less selfish, because what it really comes down to is pornography promotes selfishness when it comes to intimacy. It's a selfish, if we want to kind of put it in gospel terms, it'd be a lustful intimacy. Um, avoiding pornography is what puts me on that path towards those nine, 10 relationships. So if you're okay with a six, seven, by all means, you know, maybe pornography won't have that, that temporal effect on your relationship. Um, but for me, for most people, I think, I want that nine, 10 relationship with my spouse. I, I want the happiest, most fulfilling, most stable relationship I can have. And what the research tells us is that's going to be avoiding pornography. And so that, that, that piece of the research sometimes is, is not part of the scholarly discussion um, because we tend to focus, like I said, on addiction. We tend to focus on, oh, it's not ruining your life. And if it's not ruining your life, is it that big of a deal? Um, but like I said, when we focus on what is best, right? If I put this in kind of a good, better, best. Um, unsurprisingly, probably to a lot of religious people that are, are listening, um, the research is really, really clear and really, really consistent is the best path to a healthy relationship is without pornography. That's just 
um, fascinating and very helpful. Um, I, I like the idea of, you know, I think it makes sense that you frame this and do you want a six or a seven or a nine or 10 versus your marriage is going to end and this will be the path to destruction. That could be true. Um, but some people's lived experiences, I'm happy, like you said, and what's the big deal? So when you frame it up the way you frame it up, it would motivate listeners to say, you know, I want something better than I have now. What I have now is maybe okay, but, you know, a nine or a 10 sounds better. So that would motivate me perhaps to um, eliminate pornography more use more than some of the other messages that might be directed my way. So I think that's really thoughtful. Um, and my experience, you know, I don't, my only, you know, my experience on this from a pastoral perspective is YSAs. And I found they had, they took on the addiction label um, in a, in a pro, you know, not correctly the way you're framing it up. Very, a, a nun I can remember, in fact, were addicted the way you describe it, you know, multiple times a day, every day. They were just the way you described it, slip ups. They could go long periods of time. Often, if they could kind of figure out what was at the bottom of the iceberg and what um, <clears throat> really was going on here, pornography sometimes was what was going on at the top of the iceberg. And if they could connect the dots in the bottom of the iceberg and figure out this was often a coping mechanism, it still was a sin, but it was a coping mechanism for anxiety, for lack of connection, for stress. And if they could sort of connect the dots at the bottom of the iceberg, often they did much better. Um, so this resonates with, you know, my lived experience in this space. Um, that's really thoughtful segment, Dr. Willoughby. Keep talking and um, just what's important, you know, I think you could do six hour podcast on this if you wanted to. We've got about 20 minutes left. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm interested in what you say to, to people that are working to solve porn mm -hmm. um, that have tried so many white knuckling approaches and Say, Doctor Willoughby, I need some. I need some new nuggets in my formula. I really do want to put this behind me. I'm either single or married, and I've tried so many things. Or yep. you could talk to um, parents or local leaders that are trying to help others solve porn use, or yep. anywhere else you want to go. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a, a great place to go. It's, it's like you said. There's there are so many people out there that are struggling with the, what do I actually do? Um, and, and again, like I said before, for those that are, are really struggling with that compulsive addictive pattern, clinical resources are really key. 12-step programs, therapists, there's a lot of really good resources out there to, to, to help with that. Um, but like, like you said, a lot of people don't fit into that, that category. And just quickly, anecdotally, you know, one thing I hear a lot from young people and even older people um, in religious communities uh, around this issue is they'll say uh, one of two things. One is, you know, I went to my bishop or I, I went to a religious leader and, you know, I, I immediately, like you said, I grabbed this addiction language, whether it was me or my religious leader. And uh, the one thing I was told is go to a 12 step program yeah, and, or go to a therapist. And I went to a therapist and I went to a 12 step program and I learned really quickly that it wasn't for me. You yeah. know, whether it's, it's, you know, being in a group setting, listening to these stories of, of people that are actually struggling with this compulsive pattern in their life and saying, whoa, that's, 
hold on a second. Like you're talking about not being able to sleep. You're talking about like, you can't get yourself to work, failing out of school. That's not me. Like this, this is not my experience. And so they quickly kind of retreat and say, Hey, this, you know, this, or or a therapist wanted to dig into all these really deep things and it felt way too serious. And so they, they retreat from those resources. And what they do is they look around and say, okay, that, that seemed too serious. That was too much, too much dosage is maybe what we'd say in clinical circles. And then they say, well, what do I use now? What, what are my resources then if it's not that? And unfortunately there's not a lot out there. Um, that, that, that's one group. The other group is, uh, something I always uh, make sure I tell bishops when I do training with, with um, LDS bishops and other clergy members is I always remind them that as, as much as you're getting in your office, particularly from these young men in terms of pornography use, remember that most of them are not talking to you um, <laughs> because the, the very common story I hear over and over and over again, uh, particularly from young adult men is they'll tell me, I went to a religious leader, I went to a bishop when I was 13, when I was 14, and I told that bishop about my pornography use. And that bishop took my temple recommend yeah. and they, you know, threw the scriptures down and they put the fear of God into me. And I made a decision right there and then that I was never going to tell another bishop about <laughs> this moving forward. Um, and then they they kind of do the same thing. They're like, but I want to stop. I wanna, I wanna move forward with my life. I don't feel comfortable talking to my religious leaders. So what do I do? And I look around and they don't see anything. And, and this is kind of the major problem where I think people get stuck and why they get stuck in that frustrating pattern of over and over and over again, slipping up, relapsing, turning to pornography again, and feeling that helpless feeling. Because as, as you put it, they're, they're trying that white knuckle approach. I'm just going to will myself to to get past this and and an analogy i always give people is say well most of us especially as we get a little older right get through our 20s and our 30s and 40s um we go through these phases where you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna give up the donuts i'm gonna give up the the red meat i'm gonna give up the the swig drink the 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 soda and we do the same thing we try to white knuckle it we try to go cold turkey and we all know how that goes right We're, we're good for a month three months three years, but most of us end up back in the donut shop. We end up (laughs) back in line for the soda. And somehow we think that pornography is not going to end up the same way if we have the same approach. It's the same sort of thing. It's, It's a behavior that's creating positive brain chemicals and endorphins. There's a physical reward that we have attached oftentimes to, as you said before, you know, emotional distress, stress, anxiety is a coping mechanism. And without good resources, we're always going to come back to that. Our, our brains and our bodies go back to what works. And, and, and I'm setting that language up intentionally because then the question is, okay, what are the resources? If the resources don't exist structurally, I'll talk about a couple that, that are kind of out there, but if, if they're not prevalent, then what do I do? Um, and, and a lot of it comes down to actually some pretty simple things, which, by the way, work not just for pornography, they work for dieting, they work for exercise, they work for video games, they work for anything that, that fit this kind of behavioral pattern. Um, there's two really big things. One is what you were alluding to before. What is the trigger? Trigger is a, a clinical word that we use that res- 
that uh, relates to the idea that our our brains are very behavioral, right? We feel things, we feel emotions, we get in certain settings, and our brains are this amazing organ that are designed to try to make our life easier in any situation. So our brain is designed to create these neural pathways to say, here's what you're experiencing, here's what you're supposed to do. And that can be helpful if those pathways lead us into healthy behaviors, or they can be unhelpful for us if our brain thinks that something is helping us when in reality that it's not. And for a lot of people, that's what pornography has become. Oftentimes starting in adolescence and teenagers, teenage years, whether it's stress, sadness, sexual intimate rejection, feelings of rejection, there is something that I experienced that then I turned to porn, and, and let's be clear, oftentimes then tied to masturbation. Sure. That made me feel better for a second. Right. And then over time, what I've realized is when I get stressed, when I get tired, when I feel rejected, whatever it is for me, this has become the donut that I go to. The thing that makes me feel better for a little bit. And that's what my brain, it's what my body has kind of trained itself to do. And the very first step is to identify that trigger. What is it for me? And, and, and this is some self-reflection. It can be some journaling is when I, when I have a slip up with pornography, I can do some journaling and say, Hey, well, what happened leading up to that moment? What was the day like before to do some of that kind of narrative self-reflection and identify what is it that triggers me? Because once you identify those triggers, then oftentimes one of the best things you can do is be looking for the trigger and redirect yourself, right? And by redirect, I, I don't mean like the old memorize a scripture, memorize <laughs> a hymn, right? And, and say it, right? That, that's very short term. I'm saying find alternatives, be intentional. Is if I, for example, realize that, hey, you know what I've realized? I've done some journaling, I've done some self-reflection. And I've realized that when I have a bad day at work, it's that night that I have a slip up. When I'm worried about a project, I'm worried about something at work, that's, that seems to be one of my main triggers. Now that I realized that, I need to start to look for, maybe even ask myself the question, like, did I have a bad day at work? And if I did, what's the thing I'm going to do tonight instead? Is it playing video games with my friends, going on a job, going to a movie, being intentional? about redirecting that trigger and finding other outlets for that sadness, that stress, that anxiety, that whatever it is, can I find a different outlet? And, and being proactive about it is oftentimes a really helpful step for people to get themselves out of that cycle, out of that kind of bad habit cycle. And it takes some work. It takes some, like I said, it's a proactive coping, um, but that's one really important thing. The other really important thing is social resources. And this is a big thing that's oftentimes missing for people is there, there's some research out there and some other things out there that really suggest that if you really want the, the best and most effective way to avoid pornography is have someone you talk openly about pornography with. If you have that person that you're willing to talk to about it, that if you have a slip up, you immediately talk to them, you talk about what happened, you talk about what occurred, you talk it through with them, that social resource is huge because pornography flourishes in secrecy. Yeah. 
when it's kept in the dark, when it's kept as a secret, it flourishes. And, and, and frankly, I think that's where the adversary is, is really allowed to work with people. Um, once that's brought out into the light, once I'm talking to other people, there's just so many positive things that happen there in terms of having accountability to another person, feeling emotional connection to another person, not carrying a burden of a secret. Like, there's just so many positive benefits that that is another just really key part to breaking the cycle. Is is and it's not just knowing that I'm going to have to tell someone. It's just takes a, a, a heaviness away from it, right? It kind of goes back to what we talked about before is it, it I hate to say it makes it less of a big deal because again, I don't want to de-emphasize right. that it is sinful and that it, it is something to be avoided. But sometimes we make it such a heavy burden that when we just talk openly with someone else and we realize, hey, you know, I had a slip up. Dang, you know, what, what can I do to help you next time? Make sure it doesn't happen again. Just talking through that for a couple of seconds lessens that burden, which again, can then feed into the anxiety, feed into the loneliness, get into this negative kind of feedback cycle where it can happen again and again and again. And when you put those two things together, that's where the magic kind of happens. If I become self-reflective on my triggers, if I'm open and create social resources around it, that's really oftentimes the key for a lot of people to break the cycle. And, and again, back to eating is the most successful diet and exercise programs. Guess what they do? They teach you about your eating habits. What are your triggers that make you eat certain things? And they connect you socially with other people. Those two things are the magic sauce when it comes to losing weight. It's the same thing with mm -hmm. pornography is, is having those two things is really, really important. Um, uh, one, one additional thing on the social resources. Um, I, I said another magic word there that's kind of key to it, which is accountability. Um, having accountability is another really important thing with any kind of habitual pattern, having someone that I'm accountable for that checks in with me, especially if it can be a spouse, uh, a parent, uh, you know, someone that I've got a close relationship with. Um, that's another, I think a really big thing. And especially with couples, that's a huge thing I talk about. If you can talk openly with each other, if one spouse can be accountable for the other, which means that, Hey, maybe there's a nightly quick check-in. Hey, how's today? Good. Hey, I had a slip up. Hey, talk about it. Um, that accountability is big. And in fact, there's there's several apps and, and software programs out there that let you set up accountability partners where, hey, you know, I'm going to set this up with my phone. And if I go to a pornographic site, it notifies my partner that, that I went there. I think those are great because, again, as long as they're used in an open environment and not an anxiety producing one, mm -hmm. um, it just helps facilitate those conversations. This is really helpful. Um, I love the idea of redirect um, and sort of normalizing triggers and your thoughts about redirecting. I've I felt that triggers are just part of mortality. Thoughts that come into mind triggers and not to feel shame or guilt at that point. Um, our agency really kicks in. Are we willing to direct and do we develop the tools to direct? And um, I also like the idea that sh shame sort of is where Satan wins. I think he wins if we mess up, but I think the real victory if he isolates us um, in self-loathing and looking backwards and the social connection that you're talking about. I've also felt like a mess up doesn't bring us back to square one. I think Satan wants us to look backward in self-loathing and shame and say, all the work we've done is for naught. I messed up. 
I'm back to square one. I think the atonement and hope and um, journaling about this is sort of a pragmatic approach that, no, I'm not back to square one. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm learning. I'm trying to understand um, the sequence events that caused my slip up so that my brain is empowered the next triggering event to work through that and to redirect. I love that term. I also um, love your thoughts about <clears throat> how local leaders can, you know, be more loving. And I've, I wish I could go back, Dr. Willoughby, and, you know, I'm in my 60s, so all our kids were empty nisters now. We've had four sons and a couple daughters. But one of the things I wish I'd done is said, okay, kids, the family rule and the church rules, we don't view porn. Um, but if you have an unintentional or intentional interaction with porn, this is how I will respond. And then tell them how I respond, loving, um, grateful they opened up, because um, I think then they're more likely to open up. And I probably, in my church assignment, would go to Elders Quorum and, and Release Society and say, if you mess up with porn or working to solve it um, and you want to come talk to me, this is how I will respond. Um, because I agree that there's a lot of people that want to talk, but just don't know how that conversation is going to go down. And they yeah. hear war stories, so they they don't open up. And they need people in their lives walking with them that are that love them and support them and see them the way God sees them. So I love some of the things you're sharing. I'll send it back to you to continue to share. Yeah, I just one one thing following up on something you said, switching over on the parenting side um, a little bit. One, one thing I was tell parents on this topic and i we've got four kids one's one's on a mission right now a couple teenagers um i always tell them when you have these conversations conversations with your kids and, and you should be having the conversations with your kids about pornography and sexuality and chastity is the question you ask shouldn't be or the message you send them shouldn't be if you look at pornography here's what's going to happen i've always asked it when when so. you see porn, because it's again that that seventy eighty percent number I, I shared earlier is is more of an intentional number. When you talk about unintentional exposure, it's about a hundred percent. If your kid has a phone and social media, they're going to see pornography. There, there's almost no avoiding it in in some form or another. And so the message to my kids has been: when you see porn, I want to be the first one to know, That's not because cool. I want to get you in trouble not because i want to punish you and yell at you because we've been talking about chastity we've been talking about marital intimacy and the importance of abstinence and we've been talking about why i want you to avoid pornography and, and once you see it now we can have a conversation about what you saw and how it fits into this larger conversation about intimacy and and now i can talk you know very clearly about you see how what you saw is incongruent with what we've talked about the purpose of intimacy is and the power and, and love that can exist in, in marriage, in marital intimacy. And can we can you see how if you saw that over and over and over again, the kind of effect it would have on you? And, and so, like you said, that's a really key thing, I think, for parents is to, to understand that they should be having a conversation about when pornography occurs. So that the message to their child is one of, oh, mom and dad want to know. They want to know when I see this stuff. It's it's not this awkward thing. It's not that, oh man, I don't know. I, I never tell my parents that I saw that. 
on YouTube or on social media or on TikTok. Um, they they keep telling me they want to know. Um, and, and again, that's not a foolproof, you know, method. It doesn't mean your kids are going to be hundred percent honest with you, but it certainly at least sends the message of inviting them to have the conversation with you. Yeah, I really like that. And I think part of the family culture is how we talk about people. Um, you know, we can talk about, I hear so-and-so's, you know, porn addict and blah, 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 and, or so-and-so is this. And I think that creates a family culture potentially that if our own kids are working through some of these same issues that we're not a safe person to them. So these are things I wish I could redo as a parent to create a family culture that hopefully kids will open up. And I love that you said, I want to be the first to know. Um, what a great what a great thing for a kid to have in their mind with a slip up um, that mom or dad wants to be the first person to know. We have time for another segment on just what's it you'd like to share with listeners on this subject. This is really terrific. And um, are, let me ask you a question. Are you available to, do you continue to speak if someone wants to reach out to you? Do you do firesides, bishops trainings and stuff like this? Do you have cycles to do that? Um, I, I try to do them as, as my schedule is available. So I'm <laughs> always happy to have people reach out. And uh, if, if, if there's a need, we can, we can see if things uh, work out in terms of, of scheduling. But, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this. Because like I said, um, I think the communication and, and the openness about this topic is, is just really, really key. Kind of across the board with, with parents and kids, with teenagers and young adults with married couples is a lot of the major issues we see with pornography could be avoided if we just had open communication and people were, you know, whether it's couples talking to each other, parents talking to their kids. Um, I, I think those are, are just really critical things. Um, I, I guess maybe the, the last two things I would bring up are, are kind of looking ahead to the future in terms of, of two things that are starting to show up in the research as important, um, but I think are going to just continue to be more and more important in, in our culture and particularly in religious cultures like ours um, that are, are really, really going to be key in terms of, of this particular topic. And, and what's related to parents while we're talking about parents, um, there's a term called digital literacy that's used um, in the research on parents and and when it comes to technology. And basically what that term means is understanding technology and understanding how to work technology, understand how technology operates. Um, and where that intersects with this conversation is that when I talk to parents about pornography and, and pornography prevention, because that's usually kind of how the discussion is, how do I prevent my kids from viewing pornography or developing a problem with pornography is nine times out of 10, that conversation very quickly goes to filters. And, yeah. you know, what kind of filter do you recommend? What kind of filter do you have on your computer? What kind of filter do I put on the cell phone? Um, and, and that's kind of the beginning, middle, and end of the conversation. Um, and, and, and the first thing I'll say is certainly have filters on your kids' phones and on their computers. I, I'm not saying that that's not a good method you know you should be monitoring your child's technology use and you know using parental controls and all those things um but what parents oftentimes fail to understand is that for most kids that that get involved with pornography and, and again that's most kids now most kids um 
have encountered pornography or sought out pornography at some point, they aren't going on the family computer, typing in a pornographic <laughs> website one day and trying to break the filter. That's, that's not how the pattern happens. They're much more likely to be expo- exposed to pornography through two things. One is their friends. Right? So their f- friends showing, you know, forwarding a video, a text, you know, something like that. Um, that's very common. Although that's much more common in non-religious communities than religious communities. Um, but the second one is social media. And a lot of parents get taken aback by that. And they say, what, what do you mean? I, I thought, isn't it illegal? to show pornography on social media. And I said, well, technically, most social media platforms have policies that prohibit sexually explicit videos or or pictures. Um, But the reality is, is that a lot of those policies are poorly enforced. Um, And and the pornography industry, which is one of the biggest industries in the world, multi-billion dollar industry, has a lot of really smart people, marketing people working for it, and, and they understand how to get around those policies. And so you get a lot on social media of what are called gateway profiles or, or gateway links, which means, you know, take Instagram as an example, very popular social media. Um, Instagram has a lot of policies that prohibit sexually explicit material from being on their platform. But there are millions and millions of accounts on Instagram that directly link to pornography because they don't have to show you pornography on Instagram. They just have to show you enough, you know, enough of, of enough skin, so to speak, to get you to click on a couple of links that then lead you to the pornographic website. Um, and that is the majority of kids that end up viewing pornography get access through that mechanism and so one and and i don't think that's going away anytime soon um and and the reality of our modern world when it comes to technology is that it changes really really fast you know i mean facebook was a huge social media platform and now you know good luck finding a teenager on facebook (laughs) you know even instagram you know which was is really really popular right now i'm guessing five years down the line is not going to be what most of the kids are using um, and so as that technology continues to change, continues to shift, um, one of the really important things for parents is to develop, like I said, is that digital literacy. What are my kids using? What apps? What social media? How does it work? How do I monitor it? it it's important that parents put some time and energy into understanding the technology their kids are using, right? Even YouTube. YouTube's another good example I use because of most of the social media platforms, I, w- I would argue that I think YouTube has some of the most stringent um, policies and filters in place to avoid sexually explicit uh, content. Um, but I would also argue that there's a lot of content, sexual content on YouTube that most religious parents would find pornographic. And so I've, I've heard a lot of parents say, oh, well, YouTube's like, yeah, I, I get that, like, you know, my kids can't have TikTok and they can't have this and they can't have this. But they're watching three hours of YouTube every day. And they they fail to understand that there's just as much material and just as much potential access to links and, and other things on YouTube as some of these other social media platforms. And so that that's something I think is going to just become more and more important for parents to keep a very close eye on is technology and how pornography and how the pornography industry is utilizing the latest types of technology and apps 
um, to access kids because the, you know, we haven't talked a lot about kind of the larger sex trafficking and, and pornography industry pieces out there, but, um, you know, make no mistake, the industry operates a lot like big tobacco did back in the day. They, they know just like the tobacco companies did that if they can get a 10, 11, 12 year old watching porn regularly, that's good for business. And, and so they are very, very good and, and put a lot of energy into making sure that they can try to get kids access to pornography. Um, and so I think that's one thing that, that parents need to kind of be aware of. Um, the other kind of emerging area, and this is going the other end of the life course uh, for a second, is something I also mentioned earlier, which is um, couple pornography use. Um, interestingly, one of the more common questions I've gotten in the last five years from religious and Latter-day Saint adults is, is the church against couples using pornography together? Um, because this is becoming, a, again, back to that word normative, um, a very normative behavior for a lot of adult couples. A study, another study I did last year um, found that about 60% now of adult couples are using pornography together mm-hmm. in some capacity. Um, and we're starting to see that bleed into religious communities a little bit. And because so many religious communities tend to very squarely focus their messaging around pornography to kids and teenagers and single adults, a lot of times the adult couples sometimes feel like there's not a clear message to them about the use of pornography in their relationship. Um, Because a lot of churches, a lot of religious organizations don't have a lot to say about married, particularly married couple intimacy. They say, hey, that's that's your business. You know, obviously, you know, maybe don't bring other people into the relationship. (laughs) Um, But what you do with your spouse is between you and your spouse. And again, I hear more and more LDS couples ask the question then and say, okay, well then, does that mean that pornography is okay? And, and what's interesting is there's a very interesting dynamic, I think, happening in religious couples. And it, you can kind of see this across our conversation if you kind of put it together in the life course. We've got more and more men that have utilized pornography as teenagers in their young adult years into their marriages. Their spouses at some point are going to find out about it. They struggle with it. It's, it, it's an ongoing issue. They have a hard time with it. And for, I think, more and more couples, there's this question of, well, maybe the solution is, if you're not viewing pornography by yourself, but I'm there with you, and it's part of our intimacy, is it a big deal anymore? Is that something that's that's wrong? Is is it a, you know, that's a doctrinal question kind of mixed with a secular question, like, is, is it doctrinally wrong? Is it secularly having a negative effect on our relationship? Um. I think that's going to become more and more of an issue for all couples that they're going to have to navigate. Um, now, to to be clear, I think most religious groups, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, would, would say that pornography in any form um, is a negative thing and, and a sinful behavior, regardless of who is you know watching it and, and what the relational context is. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of the research that suggests that Although couples that view pornography don't have the same negative effect on their satisfaction, their stability rates greatly decrease. Um, it erodes at the stability of your relationship. Interesting. Um, viewing pornography together. 
um, even if it's part, even if that's the only thing is, is watching it together, there's no solo um, or individual pornography. It erodes in the stability of your relationship. Um, and so when people ask that question, I'm able to give them the research and say, no, you know, like I said before, the healthiest, the stablest, happiest couples are the ones that avoid pornography. Um, but I think that's going to have to become more and more of our conversation because we almost never talk about it True. right now um, in religious communities. We're not talking about couples using pornography together. It's almost always an individual in isolation. Um, and I think you're starting to see some of the beginnings in the research and the data suggesting that even in religious communities, this is going to become a bigger and bigger question for couples. Um and in a bigger and bigger issue for how they decide to navigate this, not just individually, but within their relationship as well. We have done a lot of podcasts. We've never talked about that subject. Um, and I think you're right. And I love just the research driven. It'll help us understand that. But I love your findings so far is that it doesn't help couples to view pornography together in the relationship. That would be my intuitive thing, but I like research to help us understand that. And I agree that that's probably something that we'll talk more about um, as more people consider that. I invite, obviously, both of us are inviting people not to do that. Um, talk, here's a random question that came up earlier, and we're kind of at the end. What's your favorite class to teach at BYU? You teach a bunch of different classes. Do you have a favorite one? Um, I do. I, I, I predominantly teach um, a couple of different classes. I teach our big intro to family processes class. Um, it's our big GE class, kind of introduction to analyzing family relationships. Um, I, I teach our family stress class called Ad Family Adaptation and Resiliency. It's where we talk about divorce and addiction and all the kind of hard things that families go through. Um, and then I teach our preparation for marriage class, uh, which is you know exactly what it sounds like: is you prepare to have a, a healthy marriage. Um, it's honestly hard for me to pick one because they, mm -hmm. I I enjoy them all in different ways. Um, I love teaching the stress class and, and talking about what I call real life. The first day of, of class, we have a tendency in the school of family life sometimes to talk about what a perfect marriage looks like and a perfect family and perfect parents and, and the family stress classes, as I say, the first day, I'm like, this, this is the real life class. This is, this is what we're all going to really be dealing with. And I, I really love helping students see how you can find a resiliency across all sorts of different challenges and trials in life. Um, and so I, I really like that. And I, I like the other two classes just because they're bigger classes. They, they tend to draw students from across the university um, I, I love teaching that intro to family class to, to see students for the first time be like, that's why my family does that. I've, I've never understood <laughs> why my family is like that. And to, to, to have that fire and that passion for the first time of like, I, I really want to understand my family. Um, and, and obviously preparation for marriage is right in my wheelhouse. That's where my research is. And, um, you know, to, to be able to teach students and help them see what is that path that doesn't guarantee a healthy relationship and healthy marriage because there's no such thing. Um, but we have so much research out there we've done over the last 50 or so years about what puts you in the best probable place to both find a healthy partner, be a healthy partner, and have a healthy relationship. Um, and I, I love walking students through that process. Uh, it's what, what I call the becoming process, you know, becoming a good partner, 
becoming a good couple together. Um, I love helping them see how the research shows this very clear path. It's very intertwined with what we know from, from the plan of salvation and, and the gospel path. So it's, it's, I can't pick a favorite. I like them all in different ways. Uh, um, talk. Uh, here's another question just in closing. Um, some professors really love the research and don't really like teaching. And some people really love teaching and the research is, you know, a harder part. Do you have a, how does that come for you? Do you love both equally or? Um, um, I, I, I'd say. I sense you do both a lot. Yeah, I do both. <laughs> I, I generally like both of them. I, I always have to chuckle a little bit when, when someone finds out what I do and, and they're like, oh, I'd love to teach. Um, I love being in the classroom. I love teaching the students. There is a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes yeah. um, with grading, with with students that are struggling with with different things, with assignments, missed. I don't love that part of teaching. <laughs> and on the research side, it's kind of the same thing. I, I love doing research. I love asking questions and getting data and pouring through, you know, statistical tables and, and trying to, to figure out little kernels of truth from that. Um, but there's also a lot about the research process that's really tedious. It's, it's you know, the publishing, publishing journal process is not a super fun one. Um, so there's, I, I'd say there's pros and cons of both. I love doing both of them. That's why I love being at BYU is, is, is getting a chance to both do high-level research, but also engage with the students on a regular basis. That's great. Um, younger listeners, I think it's great, um, obviously, to listen to Dr. Willoughby and what he's teaching about the subject, but his personal story they shared up front. I love hearing these stories about your 16-year-old self would never have believed it. But I love that you've always felt, you know, you were going to go into medicine and you just kind of followed that. I love Elder Bednar's talk about fog, and we often know the next step we need to take, and we don't have clear light on the whole, for our whole career. And a lot of stories are like that. He just kind of kept taking steps, knowing the next steps to take. And now here you are um, as a professor at BYU teaching and doing so much research. And I think that helps younger people to write their own story and to have hope that as you're making your way forward, that, you know, you're going to figure this out. Um, in our show notes, we'll link to Dr. Willoughby's website. It has um, his email there in case you do want to talk to him potentially about a fireside or a training. It has a link to his research and the stuff he's doing. We'll also link to a chapter of my book. If you're not familiar, I wrote a chapter called Ending Pornography Use. It's sort of my pastoral approach without the research that Dr. Willoughby's talking about. I'll link to that if you want to just read that chapter. I also want to mention... Um, the only woman we've had on the podcast to talk about her own porn use was Maddie Davis, a BYU student, episode 622, and she was so brave. And she started a, a podcast um, talking about this space for other women, because as you point out, often there's more shame for women. They have to open up to a male guy that's a bishop if they're going to talk to their priesthood leader. And as you know, there's so much more, it's more complicated, but I'm grateful for brave people like Maddie willing to share her story. Anything you'd like to share just in the lot in closing, Dr. Willoughby? Um, no, I've, I've actually had a chance to talk to, to Maddie on her you podcast. Know, oh, great. Uh, yeah, you've been, you've been on uh, her podcast. I have. Yes. Yes. That's great. I agree with you about uh, all the great things she's doing. Um, uh, honestly, my, my little plug uh, will be uh, for the, the Liahona in August uh, focuses on pornography. Yay. Um, if people haven't seen that, um, I had the opportunity to write the uh, introduction and I've got uh, one of the articles in there and there's um, a, a lot of other really good 
stories um, and some great messages about overcoming trials, uh, overcoming pornography. So that's that. That'd be my my plug. If you haven't had a chance, it came out a week or so ago to go through read through that issue. Um, I'd encourage you to do so. And listeners will add that to the show notes too. So that will be in the show notes. So you can link right to it. And um, thank you, Dr. Willoughby, for your work. This is um, Brian Willoughby and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.